Joined now from Toronto by the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Dr. Chris Kiefer. Hey, Sterling. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back, Dr. Kiefer. Uh, Let's talk a little bit before uh, moving to Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Chris, it might help our listeners um, understand the position you take with respect to uh, encouraging nuclear for Canada to take a look at a failed experiment and one that the whole world is watching in real time. And we're talking about Germany, Chris, and the fact that they, to, um, to... kowtow to the Greens politically, the Angela Merkel government uh, deliberately took down the majority of Germany's nuclear capability in favor of deferring to Russian petro uh, supplies. And we all know how that's ending, and it's not very well, and it's really not very pretty. So talk to us about the failed German nuclear experiment, please. Uh, well, I'd rephrase that, I guess, as the, the failed German renewables experiment. But, you know, there's there's a twin tragedy here. Um, one is, as you're mentioning, um, Germany made this ideologic decision to phase out nuclear energy. This was after the Fukushima accident. Um, and they used to be powered 25% by nuclear energy. Um, you know, they have probably the best run fleet in the world. I mean, you can you can say a lot of things about Germans, but they're excellent engineers. They've won a hell of a lot of Nobel Prizes. They really know how to run uh, industry. Um, so absolute world-class nuclear fleet, which, you know, there's there's nothing similar in terms of Japan and Germany in terms of, you know, their, their geography and earthquakes and things like that. Mm-hmm. They have this, this jewel of a nuclear fleet, um, which provides carbon-free power, um, you know, very, very affordable, et cetera. Um, and, you know, they made a move to turn that off in favor of hooking themselves up to Russian natural gas. And so, you know, this twin tragedy is, is number one, that Germany has become one of the main financiers of Putin's atrocities uh, in Ukraine. Yes. Um, sending literally hundreds of billions of dollars into Putin's coffers. Um, and, of course, the other one is that the whole rationale for this energy transition they've been on, they've spent now over $500 billion dollars. Um, on a wind and solar heavy transition has not borne fruits. It's not resulted in anything like deep decarbonization, something we've achieved here in Ontario where we're able to phase out coal. Um, Germany still remains completely reliant on fossil fuels because, as we all know, um, the wind and sun often don't cooperate Mm -hmm. with energy production. Um, And so that's really left them in a lurch. Um, And I'm I'm glad you're calling it a failed experiment. We really do need to pay attention um, to to what is happening in Germany, because our politicians are are giving us a similar set of recommendations in terms of how we should proceed on climate change. And in Canada in particular, we have a much better option, and that is to continue to embrace nuclear energy, which has done an enormous amount. It's our second largest source of electricity electricity. after hydroelectricity and it's carbon free and you know where i live here in ontario um, it's resulted in what everyone is talking about a deeply decarbonized almost zero carbon electricity grid, which is the foundation of of taking climate action now let's talk a little bit more about the other consequence of germany's decisions vis-a-vis nuclear uh, reduction uh, and now with the this the pinch coming from Russia in terms of reliable supplies. And now that's a game Putin is going to be thrilled to play on the West, on all his customers for months to come. It's going to be a horrible winter. Uh, So Germany now, Chris, is reduced to returning to coal. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and 
it's it's again for particularly the Green Party in Germany, which you know loves to preach on climate. Um, this really uh, reveals the the hypocrisy here. Um, again, in this ideological fear-based commitment to shutting down nuclear energy, which is, you know, it's been assessed numerous times now, um, but most recently by the UN Economic Commission of Europe. Um, nuclear is the lowest carbon source of electricity generation there is, bar none. Lower than hydroelectricity, lower than wind, lower than solar. Um, you know, so the scientific evidence is there. Um, Coal is the worst. It is literally the worst, and not just on carbon emissions, but on air pollution and many other metrics. And mm-hmm. Germany burns some of the dirtiest, worst coal in the world called lignite. Super polluting stuff. I mean, these plants kill probably about 1,000 people a year each with their air pollution. Um, you know, so that's, that's a pretty shocking turnaround. But, you know, again, this really illustrates, we're, we're told all the time, you know, wind, solar, and storage is all that we need to transition off of fossil fuels and, and head into this wonderful world where there's no climate change anymore. Um, well, that storage is fossil fuels. Right. That's the only thing that can store energy for months or even years at a time. Um, it's either that or something like nuclear. And what our challenge with climate change is not just replacing energy from fossil fuels. It's replacing what we call fossil fuel services. So what, what do fossil fuels offer? They offer energy that's affordable, it's cheap, it's reliable. You turn it on, it's there when we need it. Um, and wind and solar just fundamentally don't do that. Um, so, so that's a real tragedy. I mean, this energy crisis is turning rapidly into a food crisis. And this is something that's really important to understand. Natural gas is a key feedstock for making fertilizer. And, you know, we couldn't feed 4 billion of the 8 billion people on this planet without synthetic fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing fertilizer prices have have quadrupled or quintupled in Europe. And this is going to have major ramifications uh, around the world. So I, I can't overstate the seriousness of this and the responsibility that decision makers have for these horrible decisions that, that have led us into this current reality, entirely avoidable. Okay. One, of, one of the things I want to talk, talk to you about this morning, and this is, uh, and you mentioned one word, you said one word in that preamble talking about Germany, and, and one of the reasons that they were so keen to get off nuclear was because of, your word was, Fukushima. And the last time I brought up this whole subject on the radio, I immediately received emails saying, I remember Chernobyl. You know nothing. And those were the kind ones. So, Chris, there's still this degree of skepticism vis-a-vis nuclear waste. Uh, the, and, and, and now there are stories about what's going on in Sweden. They seem to have uh, come uh, to some kind of solution. But nonetheless, in terms of convincing Canadians that this technology is indeed as viable as you believe it to be, you have to deal with nuclear waste. So let's have a go at that. Just, just quickly on the, on the topic of accidents. So, you know, when a coal plant runs perfectly, it kills more people every year than Chernobyl has killed them since the accident happened. So there's been a real radical misunderstanding of the, the impacts of nuclear accidents. I mean, Fukushima really was a worst-case scenario. You had four simultaneous core meltdowns of, of a large-scale reactor. Mm-hmm. There has been at most one death related to radiation from that event. There's a real misunderstanding here. There is some danger to the on-site staff, although even in that case, in that worst-case scenario, the, the fourth largest earthquake ever measured um, in, in world history that shifted the axis of the Earth that was so powerful, 
Um, we had these meltdowns, and there was no radiation-related injuries. I say this as a physician who has studied the highest quality evidence here in terms of the UN reports um, on, on the impact of that accident. Compare that to a, a coal plant that's putting uh, particulate matter out into the air every single minute of the day when it's functioning perfectly. Um, these are the kind of choices that we need to make. We're, we're mature people. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to assess things in, in that regard. But, you know, getting to this question of waste, yeah. I mean, nuclear waste is, is, is really being leveraged as a bogeyman. It's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's actually a pretty ideal form of waste. We produce an incredibly small volume of it because uranium is so energy dense. So if you were to get all of your energy from nuclear, um, including your flights, your travel, everything else, the amount of waste that you, Sterling Fox, would produce in the life of a, you know, fairly well-to-do Westerner would fit in one Coke can. That's how much high-level nuclear waste you'd make. Right. So it's a tiny, tiny amount. There's never been an injury associated with stored civilian nuclear waste in the entire history of civilian nuclear energy, going back 60 years. All of Canada's nuclear waste would fit in one hockey rink piled, one telephone pole high. That gives you a sense of the volume, and it's been safely stored and shielded. We do have long-term solutions. One is that, you know, in the future, we'll be able to use a lot of the energy that remains in that waste um, in, in a new generation of reactors. The other is that we can put it underground. Um, and people worry because they say, hey, no civilization, you know, has lasted longer than a thousand years. We need to store this stuff for at least a thousand, maybe right. 10,000 years. We're putting it in rock. We're looking at geologic time frames. And the rock that we're looking at right in my backyard here in Ontario it only allows water to move a meter every million years. And that's the only way for this waste to get out. Out of so many different artificial barriers, you know, again, a solid waste that would need to be dissolved in water and, and move through rock to get anywhere, it takes a million years for that water to move one meter. That's what really put my mind at ease about this, is understanding that the rock is the barrier, the geology is the barrier. And so, you know, we're making a mountain out of a molehill as we continue to spew coal and smog from natural gas out into the world. I think a lot of the green folks think, well, we don't need coal, we don't need gas. Well, just look at what's happening in Europe, right? That is the failed experiment. Mm-hmm. And there, some people are saying we just need to build more wind and more solar. Well, again, the majority of the time wind turbines don't produce, especially in Europe, the vast majority of the time the solar panels are not working, not just nighttime, but, you know, it's a, it's a cloudy northern hemispheric place, just like Canada. It's kind of like Vancouver, so, yeah. Just like Vancouver. And so, you, you know, except it doesn't have the endless hydroelectricity that we all envy about you guys at BC. That's you know? true. Um, so we have to make grown-up choices here and, and, and look at things, um, but we really need to shift the narrative and educate, and that's why I'm excited to, to be on your program to be able to do that. Our guest joining us from Toronto, Dr. Chris Keeper, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. And Dr. Keeper on Thursday night down in California, in a debate that lasted well into the middle of the night, they decided to extend the life of their last nuclear power station, which provides about 10% of the overall power to the state. It was scheduled to close in 25. They extended the life of the nuclear station till 2030 simply to avoid blackouts. Uh, this is a quite an, an attitude change for the government uh, of California under Gavin Newsom. Uh, would this suggest that attitude changes might be in the offing for the government of Canada? Yeah, the, the victory at Diablo Canyon, keeping that plant online for at least another five years, is a huge win. It's a win for Californians, it's a win for affordable energy, and it's a win really for climate and the environment. California, you know, there's a great saying I heard recently, which is, in the, in the war between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated. 
California um, has passed a mandate recently that all new cars sold by 2035 will need to be uh, EVs. Yeah, There'll be no that. more internal combustion mm-hmm. engines. Three days later, they asked Californians not to charge their EVs, this relatively small fleet they have right now, because the grid is under so much strain. Sure. You know, so this this bill was debated, but I have to say the vote was near unanimous. Between the House and the Senate, there were only four people that voted against uh, this move to extend this nuclear plant. Part of this is because, you know, the governor has, I think, presidential ambitions. Yes. He doesn't want in five or ten years to be running for the presidency and his home state to be going through rolling blackouts, uh, you know, five or six times a year. That's not going to look good for him. Um, but it's a, it is an amazing turnaround because this governor sort of built part of his political career on the promise to shut down this nuclear plant, again, for no uh, no good reason, um, simply to kind of appease uh, folks that are uh, on the green or on, on the kind of left wing perspective. Um, but it would have been disastrous, absolutely disastrous in terms of blackouts. And again, every time a nuclear plant gets closed, it is not replaced by wind and solar mm. because wind and solar don't do what nuclear does, which is stay on day and night and provide reliable power. So we saw that with the, the nuclear closure in New York and Indian Point, um, you know, last year and with Palisades this year, you just see sky, uh, fossil fuel use skyrocket. So right. I thank God they came to their senses. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of friends like myself who are involved in this strange new phenomenon of advocating for nuclear energy that we're, we're involved in saving that plant. Interesting. Dr. Kiefer, why is the government of Canada, particularly the Environment Ministry, uh, so fiercely opposed to nuclear? Oh, God. It makes no sense to me. Um, you know, as you know, I, I confronted our environment minister, Stephen Gilbo, at, uh, at the COP conference, COP26 for your listeners. That's the big uh, UN climate conference every year. And I pointed out to him that in all four of the decarbonization pathways um, that this uh, IPCC, the UN climate organization, puts out, all of them call for a dramatic increase in nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. You know, our environment minister has a long standing history as an environmental activist. He repelled off of the CN Tower, drawing attention to climate change, but he ignores the, the very inconvenient climate science that goes against his green ideology. So, unfortunately, you know, he's very influential. Um, we also have Minister of Natural Resources, um, Minister Wilkinson, um, who is really taken to this idea that hydrogen is somehow going to, um, you know, be the fuel of the future. Mm. And it's it's an incredible example of energy illiteracy, this idea that, you know, hydrogen can be substituted for natural gas. Natural gas is an energy source. Hydrogen, we have to make it. It really doesn't exist in nature. Um, and it's incredibly energy intensive to make. And it's incredibly hard to ship and store. Um, so just to give you an example, I mean, when the German chancellor visited um, last month, um, the government, uh, rather than uh, announcing plans around trying to bail out Germany with, with natural gas, they right. said, oh, we're going to set up a big wind farm. Uh, with electrolyzers that will turn water into hydrogen. We're going to turn that into ammonia. We're going to ship that across the Atlantic. You will turn it back into hydrogen and burn it in your power plants. I mean, this is so anti-environmental. You just have to think about all of those conversions, um, all of that shipping. And this is when Germany has three great nuclear reactors that are putting an enormous amount of electricity onto their grid that they're just planning to shut down willy-nilly. And we had our natural resource minister defending the German decision to shut down their nuclear plants in the worst energy crunch since the OPEC crisis and entertain them with this um, absolute delusion around you know, hydrogen being something that will bail them out. Um, 
I think, you know, similar to what we saw in California, um, physics will win in the end. Um, we're seeing around the world a huge turnaround. Germany is, is seriously reconsidering um, not phasing out its nuclear, its remaining plants. Sure. Belgium had a plan to be off nuclear this year. They've delayed that by 10 years. Korea has said we're actually going to stop building renewables and we're going to build more nuclear. Japan is planning on building new nuclear and bringing all of its old plants online. Um, when fossil fuels are expensive or scarce, that's when nuclear really thrives. When fossil fuels are expensive and scarce, that's when renewables really do not shine. And we see them for the failed experiment that they have been. Chris Kiefer, uh, always a pleasure, sir. I'm fresh out of time and grateful for yours on a, on a holiday weekend. We almost had a chance to have a coffee on your last visit to Vancouver. Let's make that happen next time. You're, you're wise enough to take some vacation time and hit the West Coast. Thanks again for this this morning. Always a pleasure. Great to be on, sir. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.